This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, Pop Culture Confidential listeners, I'm Christina Yerling-Biro. Welcome back to part two of our Once Upon a Time in Hollywood week, where we're meeting two of the brilliant minds behind Tarantino's critically acclaimed and very personal movie. I'm Rick Dalton. It's my pleasure, Mr. Schwartz. Call me Marvin. Put it there. That's your son? No, that's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. Last night, we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. <laughs> All the shooting. <laughs> I love that stuff, you know, the killing. A lot of killing. All right, what's the matter, partner? It's official, old buddy. Well, it has been. In part one, we met Tarantino's longtime music supervisor, Mary Ramos, who helped put together the incredible soundtrack and all of the stories of how that process came together. For more background on the film, start off by listening there. Today, you'll be meeting Barbara Ling, the production designer known for her work on, among other things, the film The Doors, Batman and Robin, and Falling Down. More than anything, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is Tarantino's love letter to Los Angeles. And the work that Barbara Ling has done, turning back the clocks to 1969 and recreating some of L.A.'s most iconic landmarks and areas, is quite honestly mind-blowing in its accuracy and beauty. From incredibly difficult facelifts on Hollywood Boulevard, where Tarantino himself stood in front of the city board to get access to the legendary blocks, to rebuilding Spawn Ranch. This was a private ranch that in its heyday was a filming location for westerns and TV shows, but later, when it was run down, was where the Manson family lived for a period of time. Barbara and I talked about Tarantino's immense memorabilia collection and how he used it in the movie. And creating the home of Rick, the character played by Leonardo DiCaprio, a 1960s TV actor whose star is fading. For anyone who's lived, visited, or grown up in L.A. as I did, who loves the lore of old Hollywood and its history, this is a real treat. I started by asking Barbara Ling how she infused her personal memories of growing up in Los Angeles into the production design of the movie. Well, uh, I I am an Angelino and, of course, was um, a teenager at that time and, you know, of course zoomed around LA as much as I could. Um, you know, you actually could move uh, in LA in those days. Um, there wasn't this, the same traffic pattern we have now. Mm-hmm. So for me, you know, areas, particularly Westwood is where everybody shopped and, you know, Hollywood Boulevard is where you went to movies and, you know, you moved uh, around the city uh, in a greater extent than now where we're, we're much more in pockets because we have such um, 
intense traffic um, on our freeways. I read um, researching for this that Quentin was uh, also a child in, in the 60s, and he had told you that um, he he sort of viewed L.A. lying in the back seat of a car, as you were mentioning, driving around. He has these memories as a kid of sort of looking out the window. Yeah, I mean, it, it's what I loved. Uh, it was such an incredibly interesting visual for him to say, imagine, you know, uh, an eight-year-old laying in the back of a car and looking out the window. That's the viewpoint as we look at signs, as we drive by things. And, you know, if you look in the film, that's very much, you know, some of the viewpoint of, especially when we do the signs popping on and, you know, it's that kind of transition as you go by. And I always thought it was a a startlingly beautiful visual imagery of his. Um, And that was kind of the way we we looked at it. I was talking to uh, um, Mary Ramos about how she worked with uh, Quentin on on all this, but particularly this one. And she was talking about that they always start in his music room where he details and samples the musical ideas that he has. What is his process with you? Does he have like a memorabilia room or how does he sort of visualize? Well, he has... um, you know, the thing that's amazing with Quentin is that he has probably uh, one huge, his whole house is a memorabilia. He has the <laughs> greatest collection of, um, from posters to iconic things. Uh, you know, the, the attraction he's had through the years from TV shows to movies to um, international uh movies and posters is you know amazing but what he really did well in this was always infuse with you know here's some tv shows that'd be interesting to look at here's you know he has a, a movie theater here in LA which was under renovation uh when we were starting the film so they and had no seats in it so they just put sofas everywhere and he would um play 60s movies every week for the whole crew, anybody who wanted to come. And it was a great way to look at, you could you get these almost newsreel type sensibilities of L.A. because they were always films that reflected L.A., you know, from Valley of the Dolls to Model Shop to, and, you know, it, it was an amazing tool because we'd all watch it together and Quentin would say, you know, look how cool that looks driving over that pass or, you know, so you had um, visuals from Quentin that were, um, you know, kind of full scale, three-dimensional visuals. Um, And we went through, you know, I would come back with him with, you know, photographic research of, areas of LA um, in terms of where we were going to pinpoint to set scenes. And, um, you know, that's a, a very fun way to also go back and forth. Whenever we scouted, he would immediately get in the van and pop in a tape of KHJ with local, with the exact same time period radio stations. So we scouted with listening to oh, with that on. How radio DJs and music. Yeah. No, he immerses himself and tries to immerse everyone involved in what we're actually doing, which is pretty fabulous. I'd like to get into a little bit of detail about one of the, I mean, 
so many of the sets were incredible, but converting Hollywood Boulevard specifically as you did so incredibly. Tell me a little bit in, in detail. How long did that take, and what were the challenges of that? Well, that was a very, um, starting with, here's the, the, the section we want of Hollywood Boulevard, which was, um, you know, almost four to six blocks both sides, to the, Rick Schuler, our location manager, um, going to the city and, and the Chamber of Commerce and all this, because Hollywood Boulevard's heavily touristed. I mean, every single day of the year, it's mobbed with tourists. So he had to go against the city to plead the case of how we possibly shut down to film and how I could transform. And, you know, the beauty of this is that Quentin was, you know, right there. I'll go, I'll, I'll, I'll stand in front of the board too and did a beautiful impassioned speech to them about how Hollywood, you know, affected his entire life and made him a filmmaker and to bring it back to its glory. And we got the permissions then it was then it was break, but never to do all of it at once. So we had to break up Hollywood Boulevard into two sections, so that we didn't create a, a traffic jam that would be unbearable for the city. That became a, a very difficult process of designing facades, engineering how they're going to go on, building them off site, and then piece by piece with cranes coming in in the evening, putting up a facade structurally then the next day having paint come and it was a it was a month's process to get um each transformation it was hard but it was so worth it i mean as you came into that first night of shooting and all the extras and the every costume and, and all the vehicles came out it was uh, you know breathtaking that you felt you were there you were in 1969 on that date. So, you know, that's what you do it all for is that that great moment of time when you succeed. <laughs> and you did actually get to film inside of, of Musso and Frank's, I understand. Oh, yes. And, you know, they, they would never normally close for that amount of time. You know, Quentin loves Musso and Frank and goes there as a daily, you know, that's part of his life. And they love him. So really in that negotiation of getting Musso's, it was all about um, their love of Quentin, too, on how much he has for years going to Musso. Same with El Coyote and um, Casa Vega. Those are restaurants that Quentin has always um, gone to. They're part of his life in Los Angeles. So... um, because they don't normally close for the amount of time that we needed, and they did it for him, for for sure. So, and they're all iconic and wonderful places that were, um, particularly Musos. That is so neat. To, it's neat that it's still there. Much less it's neat that they allowed us to shoot in there. One of the interesting things about this movie is sort of the the uneasiness in the narrative between old Hollywood and the counterculture coming in. I'm thinking, um, did this figure into your design aesthetics, your thinking at all? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I think that's the, the, the thing that you kind of saw in that was that, you know, the old and new. And, you know, I'd always think it, too, when I was um, in the, 69 as a 
teenager is that, you know, you'd see these beautiful buildings or you'd be in front of the Chinese theater and it would, you know, be this glamorous theater. And then all of a sudden, you know, it would be um, kind of just Hare Krishna's going by singing and, you know, this this unique, you know, other group of people that that didn't quite um, mesh with what that is. And I think in design, you know, you have some of that where you're you're looking at these great um, iconic buildings and marquees, and then there's a blacklight poster that's um, mural that's painted on the wall uh, next to a poster shop that just doesn't look like it should be there, but it's part of the the transformation of what was happening at that time. And I think that was a very important thing to reflect, uh, was the old and new all at the same mush, the same time period. Another thing you worked on um, was was Spawn Ranch and the sets for that, which I understand Spawn Ranch doesn't exist anymore. It's not there, which is where the, the Manson family lived for, for a period of time. Right. Tell me about designing that. Well, the the original, of course, was burned down in the 70s and then, um, you know, was bulldozed over. So that is actually now just looks like kind of a overgrown hill. So, but the the area that Spawn Ranch was in is called the Santa Susana Pass area, and you know we we concentrated on trying to find the terrain, the rocky, dusty terrain, and a place where I could rebuild this. And again, Rick Schuler uh, Locations team found a park that had um, just. That, you know, had that feeling. And again, we had great research all the way back when Spawn Ranch was actually really making movies in its heyday, um, which is where I started, so that you kind of created the Western town. Then as you look at the buildings that were attached to it, and then kind of as through the years, the dilapidation to the point of when the Mansons were there, where it was in its full dilapidation and half the buildings had been converted into chop houses for, you know, uh, stolen cars. And um, and it was, you know, it, it took uh, quite a few months of the start of it to the layering, to the aging, and then bringing in all the old trucks and buses and because it was littered with old um, cars and bikes and uh, and then kind of just layered it in at the end to um, to get that because we had the research of of course spawn as it was you know the police swarmed upon it to pick up the Manson family and so we put in the iconic sensibility of of that time period right before it was all shut down. So it was a long process and, and a big layering process, but uh, it's, it came out quite good and so good that some of the neighbors in that na- area we built who were old timers um, started recognizing it as we were building it. And they go, hey, wait a minute, is this Vaughn Ranch? Oh, no. <laughs> did, did they freak them out? I yeah, know. they were actually a little uh, annoyed, but... You know, they, we assured them it was a small part of the movie, and this is not a, we're not glorifying them. But it was interesting. It, it made me realize we were 
pretty right on when they could notice it just in the raw building of uh what about the the character i mean like leonardo dicaprio's house i mean it's very specific what was your thinking there well you know the the beauty when you read a a quentin tarantino script is that he writes them like a novel so he doesn't write like a screenplay screenplay he explains you know he'll go off and give you a bit of the background and who this guy is and pieces of him um uh, and so you have a little you have a full sense of who Rick was and then once um sitting down with Quentin about how this house you know which was that kind of you know late 50s early 60s you know mid-century-ish you know bachelor you know you had the pool you had the this you had the um, that that a, an actor would buy at that time up in the canyons, um, and then you know layering uh, with you know Quentin had a very specific choreography in his head of how um, all of the pieces would be in that house, um, the stunt sequences, the sequences of just um, Leo would be played out. So we went through different ideas of how to lay out the house and you know Quentin really is you know his his brain is very visual in how well I think I'm going to need this I'm going to need this so but we did all the kind of I did the architectural with um, layout with him and then started designing into what that period of time and type of house and then when it came to dressing into Leo's character, that's where Quentin very much, you know, he loves all of that so much. He's a hands-on, uh, you know, I want to have these posters, I want to have these. You know, he came up with, of course, all the, you know, he wrote what those movies were that 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 Leo was going to be doing and in Italy, and all those posters were very hand-driven by um, by Quentin. And then it came to, you know, pieces of, like, his bar. His bar was an important element. Um, and, you know, Quentin walks right in the door with a little box of stuff from his house. You know, he he has specific mugs and certain things that he thinks that's part of the character that he wrote for who Rick is. So he loves to actually add pieces of his own um, sensibility. That's one place where you really feel this sort of old Hollywood being pushed out by the new modern design of the younger people coming in with their new oh, movies yeah. and shows. And that house is really sort of representative of that. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know this era so well. I mean, you worked, you did amazing work on the movie The Doors, um, together with the same cinematographer that you worked with here. Are there any specific challenges um, of, of designing that era? Well, there is, because, you know, you, you know, with any, any era, but specifically that era, is that, you know, there is now such a, um, a wave of being in mid-century and, just about everything is called mid-century. And the one thing that, you know, you never want, and Quentin is very much a, uh, it's a mantra for him, is that things feel real, you know, that you're not just doing a setting, that, you know, it's a set, it's a, it's a real world. And 
that f- things feel real and feel like someone's been there and um and I think in this case the you, you need to have an eclecticness a little bit that's um broad so that you don't look like um dwell magazine right now in this we didn't want it to become you know a um oh I'd love to live there house it's a, it's the house that he had that was a very much what you know kind of TV and movie stars, you know, lived in these kind. You know, this was LA's um, kind of sense of architecture. Was the I remember once walking by when I was young, when I when when growing up, I walked by Marilyn Monroe's house, and I remember also thinking exactly what you're saying that wow, this does not look like my vision of what you know, a star of what she had become as a star for me would be. And she lived and it was very simple yeah. and small. And that. No, it is. It's interesting. I know. It was always interesting to me where, you know, where stars lived then and now where stars live, you know, now stars' homes look like stars' homes. You know, it's mega mansion. It's, you know. Yeah, you can't even see them because of the gates. No, exactly. Yeah. We started by um, talking about, you know, that you – you yourself this was a part I mean you're from Los Angeles yourself and this is your city was was there something any of the landmarks or any of the particular part of the movie that really felt extra special and emotional for you well you know it it, it, because I was on the uh, the west side what was kind of fun uh, was to you know uh, I I liked to do Westwood. It's an, it's an area of LA that most people don't even really know about if you're not from LA because it's not it's not the center of shopping anymore or 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 much. It's kind of in a transitional mode right now. So, um I loved that um that we did that four corner and put Hamburger Hamlet back and things that were very iconic um restaurants um and I also think um, that there was a great, uh, a, a great feeling for me on Hollywood Boulevard because that's also a major memory of uh, uh, of things, and and where you were excited even as a kid, you were taken to you know big movie, you know, to be in a big movie theater, the Grommans or the you know. The Pantages was so overwhelming. So those are, you know, kind of for my memory, um, the glamour spot, the spots uh, of that time. So, and the Wilshire Corridor. I grew up in LA. I remember, and, uh, and also then later, I, I lived right on Wilcox, right off Hollywood Boulevard, and and I, it's just something special about that. But and one of my little secrets when I when I go back is I always go to the Westwood Cemetery, which I think is like this little pearl with uh, all the, with all these, you know, which was always fantastic. It's always yeah. all these incredibly. Um, Iconic and even funny tombstones with all the actors that no no one they don't people no. don't know about that as much as they do like forever or something that that's that's my tip that I, I leave know. to people. It's so true, <laughs> Barbara. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. Thank you so much to Barbara Ling, production designer on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. The movie is out in the U.S., premieres in Sweden, and in many parts of Europe on August 16th. 
And thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe to Pop Culture Confidential wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have a minute, please review the show. It really helps others find us. This show was edited by Julia Scott, and I'm Christina Yerlingbiro. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.